This is a Dice of Brussels. Uh, it's an end game. Uh, it's not the end game, uh, because that would be ridiculous. This is going to be an end game, uh, and I think one of the joys of this process, as you've uh, noticed over the past few years, is that it never quite seems to come to an end. However, given where we are, which is just before the European Council, uh, it's fair to ask whether this is actually the, the crunch point that so many people uh, have been saying it's going to be. Now, what's clear here is that we are at a, uh, an important point in the process. Uh, we've seen a lot of movement over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, actually, no, not movement, activity. We've seen a lot of activity in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and we're now getting to the point where people are talking about deals being struck, concessions being made, next steps, ratification, all the rest. So I think it's useful just to try and unpick this uh, a little bit and uh, think about where more realistically uh, and less emotionally we actually might be. For a long time, not much has happened. Uh, we had some activity in the early summer around checkers, trying to sell that, the difficulties that came with it, uh, the various uh, polite yes buts from the EU, uh, really trying to just kind of keep things ticking over. And then we fell into uh, the return of Parliament. We saw some uh, activity starting up again, some discussions and negotiations, but not a whole lot. And one of the things that really was being waited for was the uh, informal summit in Salzburg. And as we know from uh, when we talked about that, uh, that did not go at all well. A lot of uh, miscalculation, I think, on both sides about uh, where everyone was in the negotiations and then it's been a hiatus really that we've had the party conferences which have left uh, the UK basically unwilling uh, or incapable to uh, to make any kinds of movements uh, on this kind of issue. Party conferences, I, you know, I think in previous years I've done podcasts about what happened at the party conferences. Really nothing happened at the party conferences. There were the usual mutterings, uh, the strong defence of uh, her position by Theresa May, this time without coughing but with dancing. Um, meanwhile, Labour are still trying to decide whether they are more interested in bringing down the government or securing a particular Brexit policy. Um, and ultimately, at the end of that uh, party political season, uh, we were where we were at the beginning. Uh, unhappiness in the Tories, confusion in Labour, uh, the others kind of controlling from the sidelines. Now, uh, this, if you like, is the light motif. It's not even a light motif, it's a motif of... Uh, the entire process here in the UK. Continuing confusion about options, uh, continuing lack of consensus about choices. And it's at this point in the last week and a half that we've really seen the consequences of that as the government has tried to move forward. So Salzburg, I think, 
practically the key thing as i mentioned in my previous episode was that uh the eu said there wouldn't be uh, an extra meeting of the european council in november unless there was maximum progress uh in uh the meeting this week so it was always clear that at the point that everyone had packed up in birmingham uh, for the Conservative Party conference, there would be activity. An activity there has been. Now that's taken the form of uh, a very high tempo of negotiations uh, with Dexu officials, with number 10 officials, uh, a lot of back and forth uh, of people, uh, a lot of uh, efforts to try and keep people in the loop. Um, manage other people, uh, notably the DUP, who took themselves over to Brussels last week to meet assorted people. And from that, we ended up with uh, talks carrying on through the weekend. So uh, this is really, if I think about it, the first time we've had that kind of weekend, let's get on with it uh, kind of talk uh, going on. Uh, And then much... uh, brouhaha is probably the politest way I can put it about whether there was a deal or not a deal. As far as I can make out from the assorted conflicting reports it seemed that there was agreement between negotiators on a text that there was something that they felt they could both live with. Let's put it no stronger than that. But uh, there was then uh, an invitation to uh, the more political level of negotiators to come and have a look at this text, uh, which they duly did. Uh, Dominic Raab uh, hopped over to Brussels for uh, what was originally an afternoon, then was going to be an overnight stay, then became an afternoon again. Uh, uh, and basically that was uh, what put the kibosh on uh, this um progressing that there was felt that there were too many concessions made uh, for the UK to be able to accept it and indeed I think that there were some difficulties for the EU as well so it's not just the UK uh, who had problems with the text. Now uh, in substantive terms what did that look like? Well uh, fudgy I think would be uh, how I would go about this. One of the real difficulties of uh, Theresa May's rhetorical position has been to close down options. Now, uh, for me, what's been really interesting is that uh, on uh, Monday of this week, so yesterday, uh, Theresa May gave a statement ahead of the European Council, which she never does and no one ever does. um, And basically she was pointing out problems that were there with uh, the uh, state of negotiations. Uh, What she didn't talk about were how she would solve those problems. She just said that there are problems and we need to work to solve them. Now, uh, I take that as a positive sign that there was uh, some advance and also recognition that offering up solutions is an invitation for others to criticise your solutions. Uh, And I think we're now in a stage where negotiators feel that they might have an area in which they can land a text uh, and then start to defend it and build out from it. Um, That's something which is 
different from saying here's a text everyone's super enthusiastic about because it's clear that no text is going to be something that is enthusiastically received by all quarters. So negotiators are playing a very careful game about not letting too much out into the sunlight where it might uh, cause difficulties. We'll, we'll come back to that kind of sequencing issue uh, in a moment. But broadly, what uh, seems to be happening is that there seems to be some advance on the Irish issue. Um, in essence, what the British had suggested was that uh, the price for accepting the backstop arrangements that have been agreed for almost a year now uh, and are there in the draft withdrawal agreement, uh, that the price of accepting that is a more uh, rigorous way of avoiding ever having to use it. And uh, to use uh, Theresa May's uh, language, we now have a backstop to the backstop, uh, which would be uh, a UK-wide customs arrangement, a temporary customs arrangement. So if we can't reach an agreement, then we'd fall back onto that UK-wide customs arrangement. Uh, and uh, if that falls, or when that falls, then we could fall back onto the backstop uh, arrangement. Now, uh, this is complicated in the extreme. Uh, it's not something that is... Uh, simple it, there won't be a simple solution and uh, the questions that it raises are multiple the scope for unintended consequences is very considerable but in essence what this is trying to do is find a way to bridge the gap to the situation that the UK would rather have which is that they would go for one of the other two options that were set out in the joint report. So uh, if you cast your mind back to last December, the joint report said we've got a backstop arrangement, which is option C, which will apply if we can't agree either option A, which is a, a really comprehensive free trade deal, or B, uh, find in effect technical solutions to remove the need for border checks. So if we can't get those things, then we'll go for option C, which is uh, alignment of Northern Ireland, with uh, the single market, uh, regulation, most of it, and the customs union, so that we don't have a hard border. So to be clear, neither the EU nor the UK want to use the backstop. So it's not there, it's no one's preferred option. However, the EU is trying to protect the integrity or the situation of the border uh, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So the backstop is there to to be a backstop. So that's a standing arrangement unless and until uh, one of the other options is there. So what the UK is trying to do is say, we recognise that there are difficulties in agreeing an A or a B solution. And that's what a lot of the customs debate was about, you know, uh, during the summer about MaxFAC and FCA and checkers and all the rest you know that was all about model potential models for doing the the, the customs elements and uh, some associated elements but because that's complicated and it's going to take time there's a risk then that the option c backstop comes into play so what we do is let's come up with a simpler version of something for customs which removes the need to fall back onto the backstop so it's uh, like a, an option b and a half uh 
uh, that's there, that we can't, A and B are difficult, and that it's uh, actually going to have to be uh, something before that, before we fall on the backstop. Now the difficulty here is time, uh, not just the time of negotiating things, but also the time in which these things apply. So the UK wants uh, its backstop to backstop, the customs bit, to be time limited, so after a certain period that won't exist. Uh, but uh, that causes difficulties for the EU because you can't decide ahead of time how long it should be in place. It leaves open the danger of having to uh, find another interim arrangement. And frankly, it's, it's very complicated. But you know, from the UK perspective, there is a concern that we end up stuck in uh, two and a half or B, B and a half uh, kind of territory and uh, no one really knows uh, when we would ever come out. So again, this is this narrative of leaving should mean leaving, and so that means we should leave something fairly obviously rather than uh, just nominally, uh, versus, well, we also want to protect the openness of borders and the freedom of trade and frictionless uh, this and that and the other. What we do about resolving the outstanding differences is not clear. Uh, the issues that uh, may raised around time limits, around uh, still the continuing uh, potential for uh, keeping Northern Ireland in a different position from the rest of the UK, are major issues. And I think this is really the big question this week as we go into this European Council. Is it that we've got a deal and we're just trying to work out how to sell it, as I've said, or is it that actually there's something more substantial that uh, words and fudge can't really bridge? And, you know, we're just kind of kidding ourselves that actually we're there. Again, I'm not entirely clear on that, and I don't think any of us are because we haven't got access to those documents and we don't know how they will be received. But I think a couple of observations are in order. The first one I've already made, which is that both the UK and indeed the EU are trying to stay positive and constructive. Um, we might take that as a, a, a positive outcome of Salzburg, which is that there is uh, increased sensitivity on saying the wrong thing or saying things that are needlessly provocative. So uh, no more allusions to the EU being like the Soviet Union, uh, no more uh, uh, tetchiness uh, from EU leaders about Theresa May. But, you know, still, firmness is the order of the day. We're seeing that with uh, a meeting of foreign ministers uh, that's occurring today. You're saying, you know, we've got to be realistic, we've got to be constructive, we've got to get on with the job. So serious, determined, on we go. Um, second sequence, uh, a consequence of this is, I think, the the importance of text. Um, the DUP here, I think, are, are really emblematic of that, that they're very clear. They want to see a text before they say yes or no definitively. And uh, they clearly feel that they're in a strong enough position relative to the Conservative Party to make such a demand. You know, we saw this uh, last uh autumn with the uh, delay on the joint agreement because the DUP basically said no and at that point the government said okay well we're going to have to accommodate you. 
that's something which is, I think, highly uncertain uh, at this stage. And again, a lot of it comes down to um, what the words on the page say. So I think you're likely to see uh, efforts by uh, the government to try and manage the DUP situation as much as possible, give them something that they can stay on the inside of the confidence and supply arrangement that they have in the Commons. And this really takes us into the uh, the final thing, which one of the, the real narratives that is emerging at the moment is that even if we can agree a deal between the UK and the EU, there still remains considerable uncertainty about whether that deal can then be ratified by Parliament. Now, as has been clear for a long time, May's strategy is essentially to say you have only one choice to make. It's a choice between the deal that I bring back or leaving with no deal. And so we're seeing again the continual publication of uh, no deal contingency notices, which are both vague and not particularly reassuring because a lot of uh, the problems that they outline they hope to address by uh, negotiating with the EU, even though they will happen because negotiations with the EU have broken down. So uh, there is a, an increased concern about what no deal means, and certainly all the expert opinion says that no deal is a very bad thing. Not everyone, but almost everyone, says it's a very bad thing. Now, uh, it's the same uh, really um, in uh, Parliament as well, that, that awareness of what no deal might mean might be enough to convince some people that even if they don't like the withdrawal agreement, then that still uh, is going to be better than what would happen if there was a no deal. So as much as possible, May is trying to close down the choices. She's not trying to let Parliament come up with creative solutions or go off and do negotiations. Or, or say, here are five options, choose the one you like best and we'll go off and do that. It's very much my way or the highway uh, on this. The difficulty is whether that's a credible position. Um, the EU is helping to a certain extent with that by saying, not very loudly, but repeatedly, uh, the deal that will be agreed will be the deal that can be agreed. And we're not going to go round uh, the houses again on this just because Parliament says no. So Parliament really would have to go down a route of something fairly major on this. And by major, I either mean uh, rejecting the deal and potentially calling a, a vote of no confidence in the government to lead to new elections, or alternatively going down the route of a second referendum. And uh, since we've not talked about that here, uh, I will just say here that I still think that both of those options look unlikely. I think the government will be sufficiently concerned about its position and the competence of its current leader to do another general election to not want to risk losing power more generally. So, again, the logics, the institutional logics in uh, Westminster are very much domestic focused and they are going to be a set of calculations about whether breaking with the government or stopping the government is in their interests. That there is uh, real uncertainty about whether the DUP 
really means it when it says that there is uh, uh, a preference for Labour's position, which is a much softer Brexit amongst the DUP, over the uh, version that the Tories are negotiating. Uh, because that softer Brexit means that uh, you don't end up with the issues that uh, there are with uh, the, the withdrawal from the single market and the, the customs union that uh, the Tories are talking about. Um, and that uncertainty really is because the DUP really doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn generally. And if it assumes that Jeremy Corbyn will do other things apart from Brexit, which I think would be a very fair assumption, are they comfortable with that when they're currently in position, when they're helping support a government and can extract uh, substantial uh, concessions on that front? Um, I'm not even going to try and answer that question because if I knew the answer to it, then I would be doing something else apart from this. Um, but it's fair to say that the DUP will push absolutely as far as they can uh, on this, which is one of the reasons why uh, government is reaching out to Labour MPs to try and offset defections from either the DUP or from the ERG within the party itself. Now, those things are all understandable. They are all relevant factors, uh, but at the moment they are somewhat imponderable. So in terms of what we're going to be looking for in the coming weeks, I think there are, let's say, three things. The first thing is, how do things go with this European Council this week? And I'll do a piece after uh, that meeting just to talk about that uh, when it's done. Do we see an acceptance that there has been progress, maximum or otherwise, uh, resulting in a willingness to have that meeting in November? Uh, because if we don't have that, then we're talking about uh, a December uh, deadline and uh, we're cutting things really very fine at that point. Uh, do we see uh, warm words, harsh words, firm words, welcoming words, accommodating words? What kind of language is there? Uh, and importantly, I think, you know, what's the unity uh, of the EU looking like? Are we going to see a continuation of that very strong uh, swing behind uh, Michel Barnier and his team. Are we going to see some, you know, are we going to have the French continue to play bad cop on this and saying, well, fine, if you want to mess us about, then uh, there's a price that you will pay? Uh, is it that we're going to see something different from uh, more uh, accommodating member states? So, an awful lot, I think, to, to look for in that European Council. Uh, not least, uh, what does Theresa May say? Uh, we know that her contribution to the debates in Salzburg was one of the key factors in the... Oh, what should we say? Let's say the mess that ensued, that she didn't judge her comments very well at the uh, summit dinner. She's got that opportunity again, although I'm reading somewhere that she wasn't actually going to be offered dinner, so maybe that's part of it. But she's going to have an opportunity to present her case. Uh, if she is not presenting solutions uh, and she's only focusing on problems, then that might be a difficulty for everybody. So, one thing to look for. Uh, 
next thing to look for then is what happens afterwards. Are we going to see any more movement in terms of negotiation, trying to move things along? If we've got a November summit, then uh, are we going to see uh, a lot of uh, effort to try and uh, get over the um, uh, over the line on that? And uh, if we don't have it, then are we going to get stuck in a, a round of recriminations and then uh, messing about for a month of saying whose fault it was that we couldn't progress? Or are we again going to try and restart the progress? So in those next weeks, I think, you know, the fallout of this uh, fortnight really, I think, will, will become a lot clearer and we'll see who is going to uh, do what and move on. If we assume, as I think we still have to, that we are still working towards a deal, then we also need to be looking at when text becomes public and becomes available. Things have been kept on a very short leash uh, so far. Things haven't been circulated or leaked, uh, but at some point something will. And then we need to see what the reaction is of domestic audiences here in the UK, of uh, other member state governments uh, around the EU, and uh, importantly, what's the position of number 10 and of uh, Michel Barnier uh, on that text? You know, presumably they will know it because they will have agreed it, but uh, they will also tell us something by how they react and how they try to defend things. So we might expect that at the point that we get to an agreement that might be sold more publicly, there will be something that looks like a concerted push from both sides. So if we see that kind of activity, that should tell us that something is coming, that there is a willingness to start the process of selling. And that really is the, the final point. At a point we get to a text that's maybe half the battle because then we have to move into ratification and that will be for the UK to lead on. So uh, number 10 will have to work out how it times these things. Is it trying to push things through quickly? Is it trying to do things late to leave as little time for alternative plans to emerge as possible? Is it uh, targeting particular audiences within uh, the Commons to help get the, the legislation through? All of these things matter. But as we get to them, uh, we'll talk about them and we see where we go. But suffice to say, I think at this stage, there's still a lot that we don't know about. There's a lot that could go wrong, uh, just as much as there is stuff that could go right. So, bumpy ride ahead. Uh, we'll talk again soon. <laughs>